Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 425. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is thisshowissogay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay like us because we sure as heck like you. We have a fantastic episode for you all this week. If you are looking for incredible transitions, then listen to this. This week's guest went from being a teenage runaway to becoming one of the winners of the Lambda Literary Awards Emerging Writer Awards. That, of course, is Sassafras Lowry. The books that have come from the pen of this week's guest have been honored all over the map, including Roving Pack, which was honored by the American Library Association and won a Rainbow Book Award for Transgender Fiction, Lost Boy, which was honored by the American Library Association and was a Lambda Literary Award finalist for Transgender Fiction, and A Little Queer Miss Carol, which was a Lambda Literary finalist in the Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror category. And now, come on, that's this week's guest, Sassafras Lowry. Welcome to This Show is So Gay. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We have so much ground to cover. Are you ready? I'm so ready. We kind of have to start with that transition point, right? Like, I can't just drop out there to our listening audience. Wait, teenage runaway, was that a metaphor? That was not a metaphor. No, not a metaphor. Not a metaphor at all. What I'm particularly intrigued by is how you decide how much of your own story to share with audiences. Sure. Yeah, as you said, I ran away from home when I was 17 uh, and very much uh, consider myself having been saved by queer community. I'm super queer, super gay. And um, being queer was a really big part of um, that experience for me. And as I found queer culture and queer community, I also um, discovered writing. I wrote zines and uh, independent publications for a bunch of years and really right away um, discovered the importance of telling my story and of telling stories of other people who had queer experiences like me. So um, my first book was actually an anthology uh, that I edited called Kicks Out, which was a current and former homeless LGBTQ youth uh, ranging in age from youth who were street homeless when the book went to press to the oldest contributor who had uh, come out and been kicked out pre-Stonewall, Judy Shepard, mother of Matthew Shepard wrote the foreword. So that was my first book. And so I feel like I, I made it really clear uh, that, that my literary life was going to be um, super queer and there was no way to that I was interested in separating um, any of that from my own experience, whether it be my fiction or my nonfiction. Um, I'm really invested in writing queer stories for queer readers. We should at least do a programming note, Judy Shepard, on next week's episode. That's amazing. Pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. What would you say is the narrative thread that connects so many of these stories? If you look at something like Kicked Out, what thread runs through all of those tales? I think, you know, certainly uh, a thread that runs all the way through that anthology is the importance of um, queer community and created family and um systems of, you know, of kinship networks being a really core part of, of queer culture. And I think that's a theme that runs through not only that anthology, but, but all my novels as well. 
Yeah. I don't rarely go this basic for our listening audience, but I just love hearing different people's takes on it. When you say the word queer, because you say it so beautifully and passionately, what does the word mean to you? Ooh, yeah. I mean, I think you talk to um, everyone, you're going to get a different definition of queer. I think for me, it, I use it in a few different ways. I use it both as an umbrella term that, you know, encompasses LGBTQIA communities. I use it as an umbrella term that also encompasses leather community. I use it as a positioning point that is uh, for gender that's outside of um, a binary gender system. So it has a lot of meanings for me. Yeah. I I just feel like you perk up when you say the word and I rather enjoy that. Now, I would imagine when you put Kicked Out out there to the world, you got any number of other narratives that came your way after that. Absolutely. Yeah. What do we still need to know about all of those narratives, right? Like, I, God, I love, I could talk every episode for every episode uh, about the importance of, of the families, not our biological families, but the families we surround ourselves with. But I think that there are a lot of people who are maybe perhaps a little too deaf-eared at this point to that there are still issues out there that we really do have to address. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, I mean, I think like on a, like a core basic like issues level, um, 40% of all homeless youth identify as LGBTQ at best you know, LGBTQ folks are, you know, what, 10% more of the general population. So LGBTQ youth are significantly overrepresented within um, homeless youth um, populations. And so, you know, that's certainly one big issue. And then I think absolutely just on a, on a broader level, talking about, you know, as you're saying, the importance of chosen family, created family, queer family as, you know, this um, system. Of, of support that so many of us um, in the community um, are so are so committed to in our in our own personal lives, and so that you know always excites me as an author writing about um, the families that that look like the kinds of families that that I've created and that friends of mine created, or that you know I see see in the world. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of things on my resume, Sassafras, but one of the things not on my resume, I have nowhere on there straight edge, queer, punk, zinester. <laughs> I have never wanted something so badly on my resume as straight edge, queer, punk, zinester. How do I get that on there? <laughs> I mean, uh, you could have a life that looks like mine. There it is. There it is. Yeah. I mean, zines, God, we, we barely talk about zines. I, I feel like you know this better than I do. That's why I'm asking you. Are zines still really popular? They're still a thing. I feel like I, uh, you know, I haven't made uh, a zine in about a decade, but they are absolutely still a thing. Um, And I get sent zines and people give me their zines um, and and it's wonderful and it's still very much a world. All right. We're gonna, can we make a zine, you and I? We need to take some time and make a zine. I don't know what we would make, but okay. Yeah, no. We're going to work that out. But that was a certain culture, right? Like there was just something that so many of us got out of zines. What, what did you get out of being in that culture? Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I discovered zine culture like right at the same time um, that I came out and 
ran away. And so the, those communities were very much intertwined for me. And uh, I had never considered myself a writer and zine culture absolutely brought me in. And, you know, I think I, I was part of making my first zine three days after I learned what a zine was. And which is, which is kind of the story that I, I think a lot about when I, when I think about what's so important about zines, right? Is that they're really, they really um, dismantle all of the gatekeeping that can happen with literary communities and um, highlight stories that, that really need to be told. And I, um, I came of age in Portland, Oregon in the early 2000s and zines were, zines were everywhere. I think it's required if you lived in Portland at that time to yeah. be a part of that culture. <laughs> that was like a citywide ordinance. Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of your specific writing out there, but let's just let's take a step back and do some bird's eye view. And and you certainly already hinted at it. What would you say you are trying to put out there with your pen? What what are you trying to tell the audiences out there? Yeah, you know, my my number one goal as a writer when I sit down is is to write um, queer stories for queer readers, by which I mean I'm really invested in writing stories that um, maybe my readers haven't seen before on on the page. Like that's really important to me to write stories that that feature trans people and gender queer people and uh, BDSM leather power dynamics. That you know, and um, just to create books that that look like. Um, the 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 rainbow of ways that that queer folk build lives and communities and bodies and relationships and families. Who inspires you out there? Which writers, right? And this is the tough part because there's such a dearth of this type of work out there. We want so much more of it, and so you know we don't have this huge selection. But but who's out there that totally inspires you? Oh my goodness, I love this question. Yeah, I mean so. You know, two people that immediately come to mind, the first being Kate Bornstein, yes. who, um, you know, I, I absolutely adore Auntie Kate. I got the chance to work with Kate when I was a zinester uh, in Portland for two weeks during a, a performance uh, writing truth called The Language of Paradox and, you know, certainly working with Kate um, as a zinester there's no way I would be writing the books that I'm writing today if it hadn't been uh, for Kate. And then um, secondly would be Dorothy Allison. Um, yeah. You know, Dorothy's Allison's work is just um, so important to like a, a queer literary canon and queer femmes and leather folks and, and, and so many, so many stories of, of survivors. And Yeah. Kate was on the show a few months ago. I, I thought I was going to get a word in. I don't know that I did. <laughs> <laughs> but it was worth it. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely worth it. And how about the actual craft of writing? In my head, you just surround yourself with all of your dogs and your cats, and that's when you write best. Is that in any way true? <laughs> that's really true. Um, it, it, that, you know, it's that, and actually I also um, I write on the subway, a lot of in New York City, and uh, I write novels on my iPhone and on my iPad, Um on the train. What do you mean? Are you missing stops? <laughs> I'm like worried you're missing your stop. No, no, I live in I live in um, outer outer Brooklyn because I have lots of dogs and cats, and and so I have a, a not insignificant subway commute, and I I write on my phone. I wrote all of Roving Pack on my iPhone, 
Uh, and I wrote Lost Boy on my, I, I upgraded to an iPad for Lost Boy. Well, I must tell you, and you just transitioned into it nicely, I enjoyed Lost Boy tremendously. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. For folks who have not picked it up, what, what's the pitch? Do the elevator pitch for Lost Boy. Sure. I know you've got oh. that one down. <laughs> I do. Lost Boy is a, a reimagining of the classic Peter Pan story. It's a queer punk uh, leather retelling. There it is. What kind of response did you get to that one? Uh, the response has been incredible yeah. to, to, to Lost Boy. It's been, um, yeah, just, just amazing. I mentioned in your bio all the different accolades. What, what do those mean to you to get recognition for what you're putting out there? I mean, it's, it's incredible. And it's, uh, you know, I feel very, very grateful for the um, honors that my, my books have received. But what, we, what honestly means the most to me are the, the letters and messages I get from, from readers telling me that, you know, what my books have meant to them and that they've, you know, seen their world um, on the page in, in ways they haven't before. Why can we not get more of this work out there? I, like, almost want to actually answer that question right now. Why can't we get more of this work out there? Ooh, I mean, we, it's an uphill climb. It's an uphill climb, but I think things are, things are shifting. I think we're having, you know, conversations right now you know in the in the world that we haven't been having but um it's it's you know we live in a a homophobic transphobic world and publishing is you know very concerned about the bottom line yeah and i'm almost thinking we maybe can't fix that on this week's episode but we can move the needle a little bit a little bit yeah you do these storytelling workshops what would i get out of attending one of your storytelling workshops Words on the page. That's, you know, I yeah. really believe that, um, you know, everybody has stories to tell. And, you know, my goal going into those storytelling workshops is to support folks breaking through their internalized stuff, whatever, you know, whether that's internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, just like anxiety about being a writer, like whatever it is, and to leave that with um, with words on with words on the page and an idea for how to um, bring words into into your life. Nice. Again, listeners, we are here with Sassafras Lowry, award-winning author. You know, nothing has made me feel older today than reading about a workshop called Don't Trust Anyone Over 30. <laughs> How is that supposed to make me feel, Sassafras? I'm also over 30. It also makes me feel old. Okay. And I will say, uh, if folks want to tune in, they can go over to thisshowissogay.com. And just a few weeks ago, we had the organizers of the Edgy Conference on the show talking about the work they were about to do. And then they had the conference, and you were there. I was. How did it go? It was so good. We were in L.A., and it was absolutely fantastic. You did a presentation, as I'm, I'm being flip about it, but you did a presentation <laughs> called Don't Trust Anyone Over 30, Even Me, LGBTQ Youth Homelessness and Programs That Work. We've touched on it, but, but give us more. What, what can work out there? What do we need that we're not getting? Yeah, so, um, you know, my, my keynote really centered um, both, you know, I, you know, I talked about my own experience as a, as a, as a homeless runaway and um, as a youth organizer and then, you know, the transition to uh, working with homeless queer youth as an adult in a variety of capacities. And, but really the point that I'm trying, that I was trying to make and that the conversations that I think were started 
um, was about really centering youth voices that, you know, I have absolutely no idea what it's like to be a homeless youth today or to be a queer youth today. And that, you know, as somebody, you know, in, uh, in, in my, you know, early mid thirties that my job and the job of all of us who are not youth is to be quiet and to step back in, you know, a lot of those organizing spaces and to let youth actually tell us what they need. Because, you know, I certainly know that when I was a young person, that was exactly um, the, the kind of program model that, that I was invested in and that worked and that worked for my peers. And so I feel um, a lot of commitment to, to supporting that um, for today's youth as an adult, which means, you know, don't take my word for it. Yeah. Talk to them. So much more work to do. Now, there is a rumor out there right now that I just want to float by you. I don't know if you've heard this rumor, <laughs> but someone with a name very similar to yours is going to be starting an MFA program at Goddard. <laughs> that is a rumor. That is a rumor. It's a true rumor. It's a true rumor. Congratulations. <laughs> That's very exciting. Thank you. I'm excited. So this is kind of an interesting piece of the puzzle, right? Like I'm a college professor, so I counsel students towards their master's degrees and certainly students who are getting their master's right now. Uh, and I don't normally coach students to the degree when they've already done some of the work. You have these books to your name. Why put yourself through an MFA program? Um, I am asking myself that question. No, um, it, it is an interesting um, choice, and it's one that I um, – you know, I have been very publicly anti-MFAs for about a decade. Um, in fact, I was on a panel at uh, AWP, Association for uh, Writers and Writing Programs, last year talking about how zines were my MFA, um, which I very much believe. And despite having, you know, five award-winning books um, after my name, there are, unfortunately, um, doors that a terminal degree can open that no matter how many books I write and no matter how many people like them and how many awards they win um, have been closed to me uh, in terms of um, access to, you know, to teaching and to things like that. Huh. I still am in that naive place. Look, I did my book tour this year. It was a wonderful year of putting my book out there. And still, even having seen the industry and how it works, I still want to believe, but doesn't it just matter if you put out good writing, everybody gets it? And apparently there are other factors at play. I mean, I think that's what absolutely matters for writing good books. I don't believe that MFAs teach you how to be a good writer. And I don't believe that MFAs have the ability to necessarily make anybody be able to write a book that people will like. And, you know, I think there are, there are, there are things that they can do. Yeah. I love that I am hearing the size in your voice and I'm just hoping that you take those into the classroom with you because as your college professor, it would entertain me greatly. <laughs> I'm excited. You know, I, I did not enter, I did not make the decision to, to pursue an MFA lightly. I, and I interviewed a lot of programs before I made that decision, big programs in New York, um, where I live, uh, low res programs. And, uh, and I will say that uh, Goddard was, was the only program that really stepped up to the plate when I asked hard questions about what it meant to go in um, to an MFA as an established writer yeah. uh, and, you know, about you know, centering queer work. Amazing. 
Amazing. Well, what other than getting an MFA, what, what's coming up for you that you're excited about? Are we writing these days? Ooh, I have a lot that I'm excited about. Um, yeah, I finished last year, I, um, or this year, I guess, I uh, wrote a new novel uh, called Foam that is all about failure and queer family and foster care and trans kids. And uh, so I am, I am waiting for some news about where that might find a publishing home. So that's, that's out in the world. Um, my fingers are crossed on a, on a press for that. And uh, I just last week submitted a book proposal for a nonfiction project. So lots of, lots of exciting possibilities in the world. And I'm, I got my fingers crossed. Can you explain to our listening audience, I think that a lot of our particular, our queer audience and our queer younger audience who are thinking, well, the only way I could possibly publish is to self-publish. So talk to us about kind of that push and pull of trying to go after a press versus trying to self-publish. Yeah, I love this. This is like one of my favorite topics. I think that it's really complicated and a really personal choice. I have done both. I've done both repeatedly. Um, you know, what I really look for for myself with my own projects is what the best poem for for a particular book is going to be. Um, so that looks like um, working with very, very small presses for um for, for Kicked Out, my first anthology came out from a very small pre queer press, uh, to working with larger indie presses. So Lost Boy came out from Arsenal Pulp Press um, in Canada, who I, I can't say enough good things about. They're amazing um, and, are, and are very much a bigger um, indie press. To, uh, you know, I did um, self-publish through my own imprint, uh, my novel Roving Pack and my novella Little Queer Miss Carol. You know, for me, it's really... Um, I think that we are in a shifting literary world and that um, there are presses, there are small presses in particular and indie presses who are, are hungry for queer stories. And so if that's a route that, that our writer is interested in, I think that there are, there are spaces for, for those stories in a way that even just, you know, a few years ago, there really weren't. Um, and, and I think that, that self-publishing is, is, a fantastic option um, if if that's what you, you know, if you want that kind of like that level of control over a particular story or. Um, okay. We can do that. We can make that decision accordingly. <laughs> I'm all for that. By the way, we didn't even talk about, you just mentioned it. We didn't even talk about leather ever after. That's pretty cool stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. Leather ever after is my uh, fairy tale uh BDSM leather anthology that um, is currently out of print um, and is going back into print uh, in 2018. You got exciting stuff coming up. I don't know that I want to be one of these new MFA students sitting next to you thinking, wait a second, <laughs> I have not accomplished what Sassafras has accomplished. That's uncomfortable. We're all coming from our own literary place. You okay. know, I think we're all <laughs> doing our own work. That was so validating. That was so beautifully validating. You have that down. You absolutely have that down. Listeners. I mean it though. Like I really mean it. Yes. No, I'm not saying you're lying, <laughs> Sassafras. I'm just saying that you have the validation yeah. down and that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Now, listeners, this is what you need to do. You need to stroll on over to pomofreakshow.com. Am I getting that right? You can even just go to sassafraslowry.com. It redirects. 
Oh, that's easier. I like that too. So you can go to sassafraslowry.com. We will, of course, link to it on our website. We, we have to end with a little advice for our listening audience, for all of our listeners out there who are just struggling to put their pen to the paper and get their ideas out there. Walk us through what will get people started. Mm, you know, I think the absolute most important thing, you know, is, is, is to just right to push through you know that moment where you're like i just i want to have written and to just do it like whether you know you take 10 minutes and you just free write for those 10 minutes whether you know whatever whatever it takes to get stories out there because whether it's making a facebook post or a twitter post and starting like microblogging that way you know you know there you have stories to tell and and we want to hear them okay there it is. That is the advice. Again, sassafraslowry.com. I have to tell you this. I have been following you for quite some time now, and I do think you are ridiculously talented, and, and, and certainly we always want to put out there, your words are just wonderful, and people need to pick them up. But I also have to tell you, you really do put out such an incredible energy out into the world that comes through in your writing, that comes through through your social media posts, that comes through, I know people who have seen you speak, and it's really a beautiful thing, because it's all about authenticity. It's all about about using your voice in the way that you are supposed to use it to make a difference. That's what we're all about. And clearly, you are doing that. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. All right, folks, and we are back. Well, we have so much time left on this week's episode, so we will cover all of the latest LGBTQ news that's out there, and there sure is a lot. But I did mention the programming note during that interview we just conducted, and I wanted to say it again on next week's episode, Judy Shepard. Judy Shepard was last on our show, I, I can't even tell you how long ago. If you go over to thisshowissogay.com, you can see how long ago, and maybe I'll do it as we're chatting right now, but she was on the 100th episode of This Show Is So Gay. And keep in mind that this week's episode is 425, so it was a really long time ago, and I just looked it up. October 27th, 2010. So she was last on our show seven years ago. That's absolutely incredible. And I remember thinking, gosh, who should we get for this 100th episode? We had been doing it, this show, for about maybe close to two years at that point, maybe a little bit over that. And I was thinking, you know, we, we should get a huge celebrity or we should get someone who's really meaningful. And can't we find someone in the middle of all that? And it was Judy Shepard. And that's back when we were a live show, WVEWLP, Brattleboro Community 
Community Radio. We know we are still broadcasting on Brattleboro Community Radio, WVEW. They're in Brattleboro, Vermont, and Becca and I were the co-hosts. And Judy called in, and we did a live chat with her, and it was just such an incredible experience for me. I mean, we all know Judy Shepard. She, beca- she became the mother to just so many of us. When when Matthew Shepard was murdered, and she was in the limelight, and it, you knew, right? You knew when you saw her, this was not something that she chose. This was a horrific, a horrific circumstance that thrust her into the media spotlight. But she did what she did, which was used that spotlight to make a difference in this world, so to have her back on the show seven years later and to have that conversation with her about where she is now and her family and the work that she's doing i could not be more excited so that is judy shepherd on next week's episode last on our 100th episode and next on our 426th episode very exciting stuff i will also remind you that if you guys ever have anybody that you think oh my gosh this person should absolutely be on this show is so gay then you need to just send us the name of that person send an email on over to ken at this show is so gay.com. That's Ken at this show is so gay.com. Tell me who you're thinking about, and every single email that you send gets answered. We answer every single email. So send some correspondence. Say hi. Say, you know what? Totally listening to you guys. I don't even have an idea for a guest, but I wanted to let you know that I'm listening. I would love to hear that, and I will, of course, write you back. Ken at this show is so gay.com. You could even say, hey, I hear about all the news from you. Well, let's get to that news. It is one year later. It's almost hard to wrap my mind around that it's been one year already since Donald Trump was elected president of these United States. There are a lot of articles out there, and we'll get into the election news from this week because the election news from this week is just incredible and a lot of historic firsts with the election news of this week. But there are some sites out there that are viewing, well, what has President Trump's relationship been with the LGBTQ community? Because remember, when he was running, he was saying, I am going to be the most pro-gay candidate you have ever seen. And then he was up there on on stage and he had a rainbow flag and he held it upside down and it said LGBT for Trump and it was just kind of like mm, I don't think so I don't think that you are going to be the most pro-gay president we've ever had and indeed no and I have to read you this paragraph this paragraph is from pink news because this paragraph says it all quote since election day President Trump has removed rights for trans kids banned trans soldiers from the military appointed an anti-LGBT Supreme Court justice, endorsed a Republican who wants to make homosexuality illegal, hired an army secretary who says trans people are diseased, proposed slashing HIV and AIDS funding, signed an order permitting anti-LGBT discrimination at work, removed opposition to North Carolina's anti-trans bathroom bill, addressed a recognized hate group gathering, and refused to acknowledge LGBT History Month. Those are all the things that he has done in just one year. He is not a pro-LGBT president. By no stretch of the imagination is he a pro-LGBT president. And there's more, by the way. Key posts in his cabinet were packed with hostile voices from Ben Carson, who attacked gay people getting extra rights and claimed that marriage is a Marxist plot, to Jeff Sessions, who is one of the most staunchly anti-LGBT members of Congress, or at least he was, he will likely be replaced. Well, we'll see, right? On the docket right now, he potentially could be replaced by Roy Moore, 
who would be without question one of the most anti-LGBT people in recent memory in Congress. But with the election news of this week, maybe his opponent has a shot. The Democrats have shown we can turn people out. And dissatisfaction with President Trump seems to be at an all-time high. So maybe not such a given with Roy Moore, given this week's election news. And holy cow, what an election this was, in particular for the LGBTQ community. The big news is Danica Rem, the first trans person ever elected to a state legislature in the United States. Incredible incredible stuff. She gave an incredible victory speech after beating a politician who wanted to take her rights away. She is a Virginian journalist. She is a heavy metal vocalist, and she triumphed over Bob Marshall, a 26-year incumbent who proposed this guy. So the guy that Danica beat was a 26-year incumbent who proposed legislation that would have restricted which bathrooms trans people could use and then he was beat by a trans person. Bob Marshall lost by a 46% to 54% margin, which is a huge margin. He co-authored the state's now-defunct constitutional ban on same-sex marriage, and he refused to debate his opponent or refer to her as a woman during the campaign, calling her him on all of his campaign flyers. So he was all about the misgendering. Well, speaking to fans at her victory party, Danica Rem had a message for him, for Donald Trump, and for anyone else following their lead in embracing anti-LGBT attitudes. To huge cheers, she said this quote, This election has to prove nationwide that discrimination is a disqualifier. When you champion inclusion, when you champion equality, when you champion equity, and you focus on the issues that unite us, like building up our infrastructure, those are the issues that you have to focus on. I believe in building up our infrastructure instead of tearing each other down. That is fundamental. When the negative ads started coming out attacking transgender kids, we stayed on our message while decrying discrimination. We can't get lost in discrimination. We can't get lost in BS. We can't get lost tearing each other down. No matter what you look like, where you come from, how you worship, who you love, how you identify, and yeah, how you rock. If you have good public policy ideas, if you're well qualified for office, bring those ideas to the table because this is your America too. We are stronger together. Isn't that incredible? I absolutely love that speech. She further said this, to every person who's ever been singled out, who's ever been stigmatized, who's ever been the misfit, who's ever been the kid in the corner, who's ever needed someone to stand up for them when they didn't have a voice of their own because there was no one else who was with them, this one's for you. So exciting. So exciting. And not the only incredible news out there. In Seattle, Jenny Durkin won 61% of the vote to become the first out lesbian mayor in the city's history. That's pretty darn good stuff. The former federal prosecutor joined Jackie Biskupski, who holds office in Utah's Salt Lake City as the only out lesbian mayors of major U.S. cities. There are only two. California, the state where Harvey Milk made history in 1978 by becoming the state's first openly gay elected official, broke another barrier. Nearly 40 years after Milk took office, Lisa Middleton became the first openly transgender person elected to political office in that state. 
After Palm Springs voted her onto its city council, Middleton said this, quote, another glass ceiling has been broken. For young people who are transgender all over the United States, they're going to have examples for what they can do. It says Palm Springs is going to judge you by the content of your character and by the work you are able to accomplish. But that's not all. So much more. Pennsylvania also broke their trans barrier as Tyler Titus became the first openly trans person to be elected in the state. The 33-year-old professional counselor, who is a father of two boys, was elected to the Erie School Board. So many firsts out there. By the way, here's another one. Andrea Jenkins became the first trans person of color elected to any office in the United States. The Democrat won by a landslide, attracting more than 73% of the first choice votes in Minneapolis's 8th Ward to give her a place on the city council. Her victory, again, came on this night when so many other firsts happened. Jenkins, who was previously a senior policy aide to departing council vice president Elizabeth Glidden beat three other candidates. The history maker who has 25 years of public service said during the campaign that her vision for Minneapolis is to bring her commitment to leadership, access, and equity for all people. Jenkins is a grandmother as well as an award-winning poet, writer, and performer. And she said that she knew, quote, the power of being in the room She said this quote, and when particularly African-American trans women are in the room, the dialogue changes. When people do try to enact policies that are going to be detrimental to these communities, I can be that voice to derail that, to stop that, to resist. Representation is power and we need more of it. Love this. Absolutely love this. Aisha C. Moody Mills, who is the president of the Victory Fund, you know, that political action committee dedicated to increasing the number of openly LGBT public officials, says it was a landmark win. She said this, quote, Andrea Jenkins shattered a glass ceiling tonight, becoming the first out trans woman ever elected to the city council of a major U.S. city. Andrea ran on improving the lives of constituents in her ward, but the significance of her victory for the trans equality movement is undeniable. Americans are growing increasingly aware of trans equality and people, and this win will surely inspire other trans people to run for office and further inclusion in their community. I just love it. I absolutely love it. This makes such a difference. We have talked about this for years and years and years on this show, that if you are in that place, where you can use your voice to make a difference by running for office, it really does make a difference. I did it in Brattleboro. It was an incredible thing. I absolutely loved being on the Brattleboro Select Board. I would love to run for office again. That's something that I very much want in my future. And just interacting with other people is just a gift. It's an absolute gift that was given to me, and I'm so happy I was able to embrace it. And to know that maybe me being on the Select Board inspired someone else to run, that means a lot. We have marginalized voices even so far in that our voices are not always at the table. We have come a really, really long way when it comes to equality. But we know even from all of these trans people being elected for the first time that our place at the table is not always there. And it takes people running for that to happen. It's really important that people run for office. 
because that is how change happens. So I urge you, if you are in that position to run for office, if you think that is in your future, you should do it. You should absolutely do it. It's an incredible experience, and you being in office really will make a difference. It just does. So do it. Everybody run for office. I would love to see more of that. So some more news, not all of it happy. A Republican-endorsed candidate has sparked outrage by warning that acceptance and approval of LGBT people will lead to transgender education. John Kinchin, who is running for a position on the school board in Virginia's Campbell County, has released a Facebook video attacking a gay teenager for wearing makeup. Reading from a local high school yearbook, he says, quote, on pages 18 and 19, one student was highlighted for staying true to himself. This means wearing makeup and dressing in feminine clothing. He then quotes the high school student who wrote that he wished people would teach their children to be open-minded. The student in this yearbook ad wrote this quote, if I could do one thing to change the world, it would be to teach acceptance. Well, this candidate said this. He warned that the ideas put forward by this teenager could become normalized. He said, quote, today it is seeking approval. Tomorrow it is transgender education because it is currently being accepted and promoted in schools. So this is a candidate who went through a yearbook, saw one student in makeup who had the message of, hey, can we all be accepted? And he took to his social media to say that this is a bad thing. He went on to say this, quote, acceptance has become a code word for what is sought by liberal activists. He accused liberal activists of seeking homosexual marriage equality and gay rights. Yep, totally, by the way. We liberal activists really are seeking homosexual marriage equality and gay rights. I'll stand up for that. You're totally right, sir. He is currently an associate dean at a Christian research university in Virginia called Liberty University, which we know that school pretty darn well. Now, the student that he spoke about, that student's name is Michael Jenkins, and Michael spoke to a news outlet about being spotlighted in this very bizarre way, and Michael said this quote, I like to wear makeup. I identify myself as a male. And then Michael said this quote, and this is the quote of the week, I'm glad it was me because I'm accepting of myself and I'm strong. Love that. Let's read that again. I'm glad it was me because I'm accepting of myself and I'm strong. Way to go, Michael. Love that. Let's go back to President Trump. A woman who was brutally raped after being found with her girlfriend now faces being sent back to her home country where she could face death. The woman, known only as Elle, fled to the United States in 2016 after she was caught having sex with her girlfriend in a hotel room in Uganda by a group of men. These men beat and attempted to kill the two women. The police were called, meaning the women escaped with their lives, but they were arrested and beaten by police for immoral behavior. Behavior. According to L, this abuse by the police was encouraged by her own parents so that we could get upright so that we would not go back and think about the same act. L and E, and E is the woman who she was with, they were eventually released from jail. However, soon after moving to a new city in order to start afresh, L's father recruited a man to rape her at her home in order to fix her of her homosexual behavior. This is known as corrective rape. 
It actually has a phrase there in Uganda, corrective rape. It is a brutal punishment used against queer women across the world, but it has particular prevalence in countries where homosexuality is illegal, like Uganda. According to a court hearing, the rape of Elle was intended to make her pregnant in order to rid her of her homosexuality. Uganda's laws against same-sex behavior stem from old British colonial laws against so-called buggery. And Uganda has made these laws against homosexuality even harsher in recent years. In 2004, homosexual behavior became punishable by up to a life sentence in prison. Well, L went to the police after the rape, but was arrested on charges of sodomy made against her by her own family. After spending more time in jail, during which she was once again beaten by police, she was released and decided to flee Uganda entirely. She headed towards Seattle, Washington, which is where her cousin lives. She managed to obtain a visa, and she reached the airport in Virginia. Well, despite having a valid student visa, the Customs and Border Protection Agency, their officials accused her of lying to obtain her visa when they found a plane ticket to Seattle in her luggage. Feeling overwhelmed and suffering from PTSD, Elle did not reveal to these officials the true reason why she couldn't return to Uganda. Instead, she went along with the officer's accusations and said she felt safe going back to Uganda, lying in order to obtain a visa. However, during this time, the story goes on, during this time, Elle's cousin got in touch with an immigration attorney from Northern Virginia, and this immigration attorney explained to authorities that Elle had been traumatized in her home country and that it was unsafe for her to return. Well, the airport supervisor denied this request for her to be given a credible fear interview, which is the first step to being granted asylum in the U.S. A spokesperson for the agency said the decision to deny asylum to L would not be revisited. As a result, L has had her visa revoked and was put back on a flight to Uganda. However, during her layover in Dubai, L hid in an airport toilet until the flight to Uganda left. Here, she texted her attorney, and he officially became her attorney. He contacted the UN High Commission on Refugees and explained her situation. And right now, she is fighting for the right to live in the United States. It is such a harrowing story, but it is a story that so many of our brothers and sisters have around the world. So we have to keep in mind there's a lot going on out there that we need to know about because we have brothers and sisters who desperately need our help, which is not to say that there isn't a lot for us to do here because there's still a lot for us to do here. A teacher at a New York school has been suspended from her job after teaching students about LGBT issues. Jacqueline Hall, the health teacher at the Cambridge Central High School, was suspended with pay after inviting a guest lecturer to teach about LGBT issues. The second day of lectures by the Pride Center of the Capital Region was also canceled by the schools. Parents had complained about a pack given out to the students, which taught about gender identity and sexual orientation. One parent, Cyril Fiel, took to Facebook, recording a video expressing his disgust that his child would be taught about gender identity. He said this in the video, quote, When it comes to teaching our kids certain things, that should be left to us, not the school district, not health class in seventh grade. He also encouraged other parents to find the booklet and confiscate it. This parent also took aim at the booklet for teaching the 11-year-old class that some people have same-sex relationships. He said this, quote, This is something my 11-year-old definitely does not need to know in health class in 7th grade. Unacceptable.
He did accept that students should be taught not to bully people for their sexual orientation, and he described this booklet as, quote, state-funded porn. Look at that. In this video, this parent said that he says he plans to make phone calls to complain about the reading material. He says he thinks parents should have been informed prior to the class that it was taking place. And so this teacher has now been suspended. Suspended with pay. So attempts to educate in a non-sexual way did not go over well. I'm so thankful. Now, I, I will shift and talk about high school. I am so thankful for Barbara DeCaro. Mrs. DeCaro was my health teacher in high school, and she brought in speakers. And, and I was not at the point where I was out, right? Like, I was not out in high school. Anybody you speak with in my high school would say, yeah, of course he's gay, because I was the well-dressed, J.Crew-wearing tennis player who sat with girls at lunch, right, in football player country in northern New Jersey. So everyone just assumed I was gay, and I knew there was something different about me, But and I suspected I was gay as well, but I definitely did not act on any of those desires. I was way too petrified in high school in 1994-95, my senior year of high school, to do anything like that. That. But there were hero teachers out there, and one of those hero teachers was Mrs. DeCaro. And Mrs. DeCaro brought in several speakers and engaged us in those conversations 22 years ago. Incredible stuff. And one of the people that she brought in was Suzanne Westenhofer, who was on our 300th episode. She was a comedian at the time, and she's still an enormous comedian. I love her to death. She is featured on cruises and in comedy clubs all over the country. And she brought in Suzanne Westenhofer to talk to our class. I did not go to that class. I wonder if I knew what was happening, and I just said, I don't even want to put myself in that position. But the New York Times actually wrote up that class, and that New York Times article, which you can still find by Googling Pascak Hills High School and Suzanne Westenhofer. It comes right up, this article from 1994. In that article, Suzanne Westenhofer interacts with this one student in the class named, I, I mean, I can absolutely name him because it's in the article, John Contaratus, who says in the article, Suzanne asked the class, well, what would you do if you find out that your roommate or your brother is gay? And John Contaratus is quoted in that article in 1994 saying, I would shoot him. And John Contaratus was totally my bully in high school. And sometimes I think, did I make up some of those stories? Oh, no, wait, it's right there in the New York Times. This kid was totally my bully. Look, he even said and consented to say I would shoot my own brother if he were gay right there in the New York Times. So I still have half a desire at some point to get in touch with John Contaratus. I'm slightly curious what he is up to. I do have a project that will explore some bullying issues, a web series. You'll be hearing about that in the next couple months. So maybe I will still try to get John Contaratus on the phone. We'll see. We'll get him for the show. I promise before we're done with the show, we will do that. And by the way, oh my gosh, I didn't even anticipate how bad of a transition this would be. But those attitudes that John Contaratus expressed in 1994, those attitudes are still there. Police have said that a father shot his 14-year-old gay son. Family remembered Giovanni Melton, who Henderson police say was shot and killed by his own father. The victim's former foster mother, Sonia Jones, has said that the, his father, Wendell Melton, hated that his son was gay. He hated the fact that his son was gay. That was a quote from the former foster mother. The former foster mother went on to say this quote, I'm sure that inside of his mind, he would rather have a dead son than a gay son. These dangerous attitudes are still out there. Really scary stuff. That is just really, really scary stuff.
How about some happy news? we got to do some happy news, right? And for all of you who think, oh, the church is not changing, why isn't faith changing? Faith is totally changing. A Baptist church founded in 1826. 1826. This Baptist church recently opened their doors to same-sex marriage. The First Baptist Church of Christ, one of the longest-running congregations in the city of Macon, Georgia, voted in August to celebrate same-sex marriage. The Washington Post reports that the church is one of the 2,000 churches to leave the conservative Southern Baptist Convention in the past two decades. The Southern Baptist Convention bans same-sex marriage, and no member church is allowed to practice or celebrate same-sex marriage. The church voted on the 27th of August to extend its policies to include same-sex marriage. Pastor Scott Dickinson and church deacons chair Bonnie Chappelle told a newspaper that the decision had been made after an exhausting journey which took years and threatened to divide the church's membership. Discussions on whether to accept same-sex marriage began five years ago with discussions on the Christian ethics of homosexuality. Chappelle said this quote, we had talked about this subject in hushed tones for so long that it was difficult to make the discussion formal. But two years after the U.S. Supreme Court legalized marriage equality all across the United States, the church voted to allow same-sex marriage. The pastor says that he and the deacons wanted to ensure that the situation was dealt with with mutual respect and that all viewpoints were heard on the issue. This meant that people were heard and reactions to those opinions were asked to be neutral. The pastor said this, quote, One of our older members said to me afterward, I've been wondering why we are putting ourselves through this, but now I get it. Look at that. It's one of the older congregants. I've been wondering why we are putting ourselves through this, but now I get it. They had a secret ballot. It took place with the 230 members, and more than 70%, more than 70% voted to accept marriage equality. A blog by the pastor just before the vote said this, quote, We are standing on the edge of a big decision, and that has brought with it an understandable measure of anxiety. I hope that naming our fears and hopes Hearing that many others share them has given you a measure of peace about Sunday's vote. And after the vote, he wrote this quote, It's hard to put this past month in the life of our church into words. We've had good, hard conversations about inclusion, scripture, and the church. We've heard powerful testimonies from some of our own. We've learned about each other and who we are as a congregation, what binds us together, as well as the differences among us. And of course, all of this came to a head on Sunday with our vote. It has been a remarkable journey and one that has left us with some tenderness, but I'm proud of where we've come together. Look at that. Incredible news. This church from hundreds of years ago changing their policies. Now, we will say that some members did leave the church after the decision, and the pastor said he was grieving, but he said he hopes other members will stick around to see that the church has not changed. Just a more welcoming church. Things do change in society, friends. They absolutely do change. We just have to give it time sometimes. This was a 200-year-old Baptist church who are now welcoming same-sex marriage. Well done. A little bit of a follow-up to the Disney story that we covered the past couple weeks about their big coming-out storyline. The Disney Channel has pulled one of their biggest children's shows from air after outrage at a gay storyline. In the second season, as we talked about, of Andy Mack, 13-year-old character Cyrus develops feelings for a fellow teenage boy. Well, in scenes from 
Last week's episode, he came out of the closet. A friend told him, you're no different. Well, now the Disney Channel has caved to pressure from homophobic people. They have pulled the show from air in as many as 50 countries across sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. Disney will no longer air the show DSTV, the network that broadcasts the channel in 50 countries, including Kenya, Ghana, Angola, Zimbabwe, Uganda, which we already talked about, and Tanzania, as well as parts of the Middle East. In a statement, Disney said, this quote, Disney Channel creates stories that entertain and inspire kids and families and reflect the rich diversity of the human experience. While our shows are developed for global audiences, we are committed to respecting each market's cultural sensibilities, compliance rules, and regulations. Disney Channel in South Africa serves multiple countries across Africa and the Middle East, each with its own regulations to which we adhere. Accordingly, Andy Mack will not be broadcast through DSTV. However, we are exploring alternative ways to make the series available to its fans in South Africa. So hopefully people will still be able to access this content, even though it will not be available in some of these markets. Some election news out of Kentucky. The Kentucky County Clerk, who drew worldwide attention for her refusal to issue marriage licenses to gay couples two years ago, she has announced that she will be running for re-election next year. That would be Rowan County Clerk Kim Davis. She will run to retain her seat in 2018, despite suggestions from some people that she run for a higher local or statewide political position. Or she could not run at all. That would be my suggestion, because it's not just about her being homophobic. It's the fact that she stopped doing her job. Her actual job that she was elected to do was to follow the laws of the land. And this was post-marriage equality, and she had to spend five days in jail in September of 2015 after she refused a court order to issue marriage licenses following the Supreme Court making marriage equality the law of the land. She claimed that same-sex marriage went against her Christian beliefs. The Liberty Council, the anti-gay law firm that represents her and all these other homophobic people, said that she is not interested in any other office. So she will be running for re-election there to be the county clerk. Amazing. How about some happy news to end on? Senator Tammy Baldwin, along with Senators Michael Bennett, Jeff Merkley, Edward Markey, and Al Franken this week introduced the LGBT Elder Americans Act to improve services available for older lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender adults. This legislation would build on the Older Americans Act to include LGBT seniors as a vulnerable population and permanently establish the National Resource Center on LGBT aging. This is so important. Senator Baldwin said this, quote, we should guarantee all all of our seniors access to the care that truly meets their needs, and so I am proud to advance this legislation that will improve services and support for LGBT older adults. Too many LGBT older adults carry the harmful physical and emotional health effects of having lived through a lifetime of discrimination. It is past time we do something about it and strengthen the Older Americans Act to better support our LGBT seniors. Happy news to end on. Way to go, Senators Baldwin, Bennett, Merkley, Markey, and Franken. They're using their voices to make a difference. What is it that you are doing to use your voice to make a difference? Whether you are starting your own radio show, whether you are running for office, I urge you, get 
out there and do whatever it is that you do to lift up the voices of your LGBTQ brothers and sisters of all of our allies out there. And while you're out there using your voice, put on your cape, make a difference, and remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?